It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Martin Myers, CEO and co-founder of Trellis, an online platform transforming the misaligned marketplace for middle market business owners seeking growth equity or to exit. Trellis was built from the ground up to empower owners, giving them more control of their outcomes and legacy with smart tools and intelligent matching to a peer-reviewed network of win-win advisors, investors, and buyers. Martin's professional career includes executive-level experience spanning startups, Fortune 500 financial institutions, and advisory work for global private equity firms. Martin has a BBA in finance from Baylor University, a Master of Liberal Arts from St. John's College, and an MBA from Loyola College in Maryland. Martin lives in St. Louis with his wife and has four children. Martin Myers, welcome into the corner office. Brant, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here today, and we're recording this, I think, at respectively about uh, eight to ten weeks into this crisis, and uh, these are very interesting times, both personally and professionally. How are you holding up, Martin, during these uh, interesting pandemic times? You know, we're we're holding up well, and I would say it's been a, an environment that has brought our family closer together, uh, which is, you know, a nice, uh, I guess, silver lining amongst blessing. all the pain and suffering. Really right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, we were talking just before the podcast. I think you have, is it three adult children in various ages? Four. Right. Got it. And uh, most of them are home and, and, and one or two are on their way from what I understand. That's right. I had a couple of weeks with my 21-year-old and uh, just her and I, and we did a lot of grilling. We played a lot of puzzles. And I thought back after she left and went home to her mom, you know, I've never had that much time alone with her. And uh, it was truly, truly a blessing. But let's start about uh, you and your early years, Martin. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like, parents, siblings. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. So I'm a right. native Texan and, um, you know, a pretty typical middle class family. And I would say the words that I would use to kind of describe our home life was a lot of love and a lot of laughter. Um, and mm, I attribute that to that. to my parents. Um, you know, we had the kind of house that, you know, your friends in the neighborhood liked being at our house. Ah, uh, and in high school, a lot of my friends and even in college, you know, just liked hanging out with my parents. And my yeah. parents were very welcoming and, and open to, um, you know, our friends and just created a fun place to be. So uh, and it's still that way when we get together for holidays with all the cousins and, you know, my siblings. It's just uh, we, we have a lot of fun. So. 
That's awesome. Well, we both connected through C12. And for those of you that don't know, C12 is a, a global a peer advisory group for CEO Christian owners, of which both uh, uh, Martin and I are. I'm connected to a Connecticut group. And Martin, I believe you're in the St. Louis group. Um, did you grow up uh, as a believer? Was it a Christian home as well? That's right. So church was a big part of our uh, lives growing up. And and it was something that we, there was no question that we were going to be going to church on Sunday. And, and, and actually during the week, we had a pretty, it was a pretty big church, very vibrant, vibrant youth group. Uh, so we were there, you know, kind of oftentimes throughout the week, especially as Several we got into, week, yeah. yeah, as we got older. And so um, that was really important to my parents and they instilled that in us. And, and um, so it was a central part of our lives. Tell me about your mom and dad. What kind of work did they do? Did mom work outside the home? Sure. So my father was an attorney, um, a practicing attorney for years in San Antonio, a small firm, but you know, just a very well-established, uh, well-respected firm in, in San Antonio. And then my mom was a journalism major. And so she went into journalism after college and they met in college at University of Texas when he was in law school. And uh, and so worked for a number of newspapers, and then when she had kids, you know, went home full time. And then, yeah. but actually, to her credit, went back to journalism um, after we, you know, kind of Good got better. out of the nest. Yeah, brothers and sisters, two sisters, two older sisters, uh, five and seven years older. So I oh, was, wow. so I was the, the baby, baby boy. I was the <laughs> and the boy, the boy baby. <laughs> I wow. was, yeah, I was uh, both spoiled and picked on, I think. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Those babysitting years. I, I have two older brothers. I'm the youngest of three as well, seven and 10 years older. And yeah, sometimes I wish for outside babysitters. <laughs> what about early influencers? Um, you know, perhaps starting with mom and dad, maybe some of the things you might've mentioned uh, or remembered that they mentioned mentioned when you were younger, or perhaps coaches or teachers that inspired you during those younger years? You know, it was really my parents. There were uh, certainly our pastor um, at our church in San Antonio was a big influence on me, and our youth pastor was a big influence on me. Um, and then, uh, but it was really my parents. My dad, he was home every day by five o'clock, uh, six nice. o'clock at the latest, and we had family meals together. And he really was intentional about that. So we grew up, and even though he was an attorney, we grew up solidly middle class. And that was really a choice that he made to have balance in his life and spend time mm. with family. And so he's also taught me to fly fish and to play golf. And, and we mm. just, you know, those moments and those times were really um, a big Crisis. part of, yeah, yeah, of who I am and who I became. And, and my mom is just this person who my dad described her at one point as the light in the room, right? She's just this amazingly joyous person, incredibly high energy person. And she's still that way today. She kind of runs circles. She's in her eighties and runs circles around, you know, most of us. And so, uh, so, you know, they really, it, it's hard to, you know, when you look back at early childhood, it's really kind of hard to parse what was software and what was hardware, right? You know, what's what, who, who, who I am today and what was kind of the nature versus, versus nurture. But, you know, I do notice that just things over time, my dad was the first person to really introduce me to the concept of spiritual disciplines, um, the writings of uh, Richard Foster and, and Dallas Willard. And and so it was one of those things that I, I not only kind of read those books, but then I saw him, especially later in life, he was the person that every morning when you got up, 
he was there at the kitchen table reading his Bible, uh, writing in his journal, and he read this daily devotional called God Calling that he ended up passing on to me. And, and you know, again, me, uh, much looking much later in life, those are the same, you know, practices that I have. That's and awesome. and so he, he, he didn't just kind of hand me the books, he kind of lived it. And, and, and I ended up kind of, you know, I've started doing that same thing. I have a devotional book called Jesus Calling, which is a which is a terrific one, and uh, yeah, that that modeling of daily devotions, which you know is a very important part of, uh, you know, Buck, uh, who is our founder, Buck Jacobs of, of C12. He's a firm believer in that, and I think he's up to ten thousand days, or from what I gather. But uh, yeah, there's nothing better than kind of getting your day right with Jesus. That's right. <laughs> Were you a good student in school, Martin? You know, it was. I was a late bloomer. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, this may, there's a common thread. I'm kind of a, your ADD entrepreneur. And so, you know, people with ADD kind of in elementary school and high school, my mind was always kind of off other places. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily right. focused on like the instructions for the next test. Um, and so, uh, but in college, it really took, there was kind of my second year in college, um, uh, is really when academically I kind of took off, but early on I was I'd say you know average student, and then um, you know and and I was in to sports, but more individual sports like things like um, you know running, uh, triathlons, marathons, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, yeah. Other than sports and school, anything music, theater, debate? Were you involved in some other extracurriculars? No, it was really just you know track, um, golf. I did play golf, and mm-hmm. uh, and then. Um, you know, just really, I, I, I loved bike riding. So I would ride all yeah. over San Antonio. This was a day when, <laughs> a day and age when you could actually do that. And I would ride my bike downtown San Antonio. I would ride. And that's when I ended up getting into first bike racing. And then I got into triathlons nice. later. Yeah. Nice. And you can continue to do triathlons or, or bike race? Uh, no, I, I've jumped to just running, you know, yeah. bike, the bike takes so long, um, that it's just, dude, I've, I've kind of pared down (laughs) and I'm not a big, I don't like getting in a cold swimming pool. So we pared down to just running. (laughs) What about entrepreneurial things? Uh, Did you have the ubiquitous paper route? Were you doing other things to generate pocket money uh, while you were growing up? I did, you know, I did the paper route thing and it didn't really take. And (laughs) I don't know, in hindsight, I think it was, it might've been sort of one getting up at like, you know, six in the morning <laughs> on a a. Sunday. Yeah, exactly. And folding <laughs> papers. But I think really what it was, I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, especially back then I was, I was pretty shy and uh, more introvert than extrovert. And so the mm. idea, and if you remember like back then you were the collection. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's knocking on the door. Yeah, that's right. So it probably didn't feel that way to my neighbors, but I kind of felt like I was shaking them down for money. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh and wasn't comfortable yeah it just wasn't my nature so that once i realized i was having to do that i was like no i'm not going to do this so i did the lawns in the neighborhood with a a neighbor friend and uh and then i ended up uh mowing uh the the properties for a, a property management company in san antonio ah, and, and yeah. then expanded and i also i drove their uh parking lot sweeper at night. So there's this big machine that sweeps the parking lot. It's the most boring job in the world. You're literally just going back and forth, you know, so you mow a lawn during the day. And then at night you go out at like 10 o'clock at night and you're sweeping the parking lots that are empty at a big grocery store. So that's a motivator to study. Probably not a bad job for an introvert. Didn't have to have a lot of contact with other people. What other kind of jobs did you have during high school leading up to college? Um, Bagging groceries was another one. Yep. So so grocery bagger. Yep. 
And you got union wages back then, or maybe in Texas you didn't. I know in Calif I know in California that was the case. I know kids were earning, you know, what's this 30, 40 years ago, you know, 10, 12 bucks an hour. I mean, that was good money back then. It was. And you know, I had people who would try and tip me for bagging their groceries. You know, back then, you know, you're literally bagging them and carrying them out to the car and and we weren't supposed to take tips, but people would actually just force it in your pocket, which is a little That's so nice. extra change. Yeah. Yeah. That's so nice. So what was it clear that you'd go on to college, Martin? Oh, there was no question. Yeah, there was yeah, no question. Yeah. And um, I ended up going to Baylor and um, it was a school my dad had gone to for a year before he ended up transferring to University of Texas. He grew up in really a, a very modest household. And um, and so they couldn't afford Baylor. Uh, his father actually ended up dying when he was um, pretty young. And so uh, he ended up transferring to University of Texas, but Baylor was just always on my radar. And I wanted a smaller school as opposed to a bigger school. And so it appealed to me. And I, I liked the, um, you know, the the values, the, the Christian, you know, kind of Southern Baptist component. And so I ended up going to Baylor. And you've got three degrees. You you from Baylor. Um, you worked for a bit, and we'll get to that in a minute. You went to St. John's and got your MA in liberal arts, and then later got your MBA at Loyola College in Maryland. So, um, education has been an important part of your foundation. It is. It is. It's actually interesting. So when I went to Baylor, as I mentioned, I was kind of a late bloomer academically, and so I had a girlfriend at the time who was very academic, and so this is kind of when I was sophomore, junior, and. If I was going to be with her, I kind of had to be at the library. <laughs> and, and I actually started reading these books that they were giving me in these chapters. And, and all of a sudden, my grades like shot up. I was like, oh, OK, so this is how this works. And right, right. It was amazing. And, and it was I think that's common for people with ADD. You kind of get into a fixed mindset. You know, if you think of fixed mindset versus growth mindset and you think it's you in reality, it's just sort of, you know, you're once you start to focus on things, especially later in college, you're starting to get into classes that are really more what you're interested in learning. Um, and you, right, right. you know, you kind of dive into those. And so, um, so my grades really shot up and, and then I realized that, um, you know, I, I had a love for learning actually. And so, uh, I felt, I felt this weird, um, gap in my education. It was interesting. So when I graduated from Baylor, I went and I met with a friend of mine. Uh, his dad was a prominent businessman in San Antonio. Mm. And I went to talk to him about what I was going to do next, uh, you know, just get his advice. And so yeah. I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I was graduated with a finance degree. I said, I'm thinking about going back and getting a master's in English. And he just looked at me like, what are you thinking? <laughs> Why are you doing this? And I didn't even really know it at the time, but I realized I kind of avoided liberal arts and those yeah. types of classes, you know, English and history. And, and I just felt like I didn't, I felt like I couldn't really write very well. You know, I yeah. just, you know, didn't feel like I, even though I graduated from this great institution, didn't have quite that education that I needed. And so I ended up filling that gap later when I went to St. John's, but, yeah. but it was this thing that I identified kind of at that point. Well, you got your undergrad in finance and you've spent most of your career. In fact, well, I guess mostly all of your career, particularly with Trellis, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, you worked for a number of banks and worked in financial and mortgage institutions. What, what led you to finance? What was uh, kind of the, the, uh, the moment when you felt that that was the right degree? And, and you know, why did you ultimately pursue that, uh, that form of study, that discipline? Yeah, you know, that goes back to a um, Sunday school teacher that I had was a business person. He was in uh, real estate, actually. And so I really picked business because of him. And then when I got to school, you know, accounting was just too linear for me. Um, you know, again, sort of it gets to that 
I, I liked things. There was more variety. I needed more variety. I needed things that were not as, as you know, kind of clearly defined. And so finance just appealed to me for that reason. And yeah. so, um, so that's that's why I ended up going into finance. Yeah, good. What was that first job you took out of college? So the first job out of college was at um, a savings and loan. So I moved to Washington, D.C. That was the other yeah. thing. This friend of mine, his father advised me to go to California. He said, California's booming. You should go there. And I ignored his advice. <laughs> I went the opposite way. <laughs> I, I did. I did. And it was really because I was going you know, I didn't know anybody in California. There happened to be a number of people from Baylor who were moving to D.C. It was actually the George Bush, uh, uh, the first George Bush administration. Senior. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so there were a number of people going for that reason. And so I knew people right. in D.C. So I picked D.C., uh, oddly enough, yeah. and worked for an SNL that was a fairly sizable, about $6 billion institution that was in all three states there, Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. Got it. And did you get some leadership responsibilities early on or was it more individual contributor at that assignment? It was more, we went through, so I got into a management training program where they kind of, for a year, take you through all the functional areas of the bank. Right. And then um, I really wanted to end up on a trade desk and that's, but those, you didn't go straight from the management training program into the trade desk at this bank. Um, I ended up being on a trade desk later in, in, in my career. But um, so I just went into the accounting department um, and really just, you know, I didn't even have any management kind of role there. That wasn't later until I went to uh, Prudential Home Mortgage, which then evolved to become kind of Wells Fargo Mortgage later. Got it. So tell me about the first time you started managing people. You know, when was that? And, and you know, was it hard for you? You know, it was later in life. It was, um, I want to say it started actually when I jumped to Nexstar. So Nexstar was a startup that was um, backed by KKR, the big private equity firm. So I made the leap um, after I left the work world to go to St. John's. So I, I actually just took a hiatus from work for a year and a half. Oh, so you did your uh, your master's in liberal arts at full time? Yeah, yeah, went full time. Wow. I realized there was this, it's a very unique program Um just to go on a little bit of a, a rabbit trail there. Yeah. Um, it's a great books program where you actually read the original texts of, you know, kind of the great books of Western civilization. Wow. So it kind of all starts with Aristotle uh, and then yeah. work your way up. So it's, you know, they do it by, in the graduate school, they do it by discipline. So you do philosophy and theology one semester, you do math and science, another semester you do, you know, um, uh, English, uh, another semester. And so you really, it's, it wow. was this thing where I realized these are the books that I could spend a lifetime reading, um, yeah. and, and, and still might not do it. And, and I could just, I actually happened to fortunately or unfortunately, I was in a car accident where I got a, not life-changing money, but a little bit of money that allowed me to really quit my job and, and go do that full time. And so that's what I did. So that was kind of the seminal moment. You, uh, had the accident, got, got a reward and kind of said, now it's a good time to, to stop work. That's right. And I was I was yeah. getting a little bit bored. And, and again, I felt like there was this hole in my education. Um, mm. And so so that's really why I went to St. John's. And it's really it really was a big inflection point for me, because I yeah. think um, I, I after the program, I was considering going to get a Ph.D. And and the idea was to study ethics and, and actually combine the business and the philosophy and do like business ethics. And then, right. but then I was newly married and getting ready to raise a family. And I really wised up <laughs> about an, another five <laughs> years. Delivering a paycheck. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I really realized I kind of solved what I was looking to solve when I graduated yeah. from Baylor. Did that you feel need. that you filled, filled the hole? 
I filled the hole and then I went actually went back to Wells Fargo uh, and worked with the same people okay. I'd worked with before. But that was only for a year or two because then you went on to get your MBA or, or did you do the MBA as an executive program? I did it as an executive program. Oh, yep. Okay, got yep. it. Got yep. it. So, so I did some managing um, when I was at Wells Fargo and then uh, again at, at Nexstar when we went to yeah. Nexstar. And so, um, but really not you know, just kind of typical management and kind of, um, I was working my way up, but we're very flat organization. So I didn't manage, you know, tons of people, usually a handful. You know, we've all had mentors, um, as we've, uh, uh gone along in our career, <clears throat> I can certainly remember the name of several, uh, but there's always a couple of tormentors along the way. <laughs> Not that you need to mention any, and we wouldn't want to do that. But, you know, I've found certainly with a lot of our CEO guests, sometimes some of the best lessons are some of the worst behavior we observe with others or things that we might see in the workplace and say, wow, I'll never do that. Do you have any recollection of any of that during your days uh, while you were going through various corporate operations? Certainly. My first job... <laughs> Wasn't hard to think of, was it? <laughs> Perpetual uh, Savings Bank. Um, I had a. He was a really um, wonderful boss in a lot of ways, and I learned a lot from him on the positive side. But he was just a perfectionist, off the charts perfectionist, and uh, and to the point where you would just spend a lot of time doing things like you know folding a paper to make sure that it was everything was perfectly aligned on you know a presentation mm -hmm. and. Um, so I learned that that was not how I was going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keeping people working late. Right yeah, now. yeah. There was no eighty twenty, <laughs> no eighty twenty with him. Now you spent a good long period of time. Gosh, almost about twenty years in total at two different companies: NextStar Financial, and then Next Spring. Now I don't know if those were related. I think you were probably instrumental in um, starting up Next Spring, if I'm not mistaken. But tell us a little bit about those years and, you know, kind of how your career, um, you know, progressed before uh, actually getting into uh, Trellis. Yeah. So, no, that the, the same people really all, all the, everything past that first company, um, I essentially was working with the same people. So um, when I went back to Wells Fargo, um, some of the key executives at Wells Fargo started uh, Nextstar Financial. So it was a startup in St. Louis. And so um, as I was start talking to them, they convinced me to, to move out here to the Midwest. And it was a great move. Um, mm. You know, D.C. is a great place to live, very much shaped who I am in a lot of ways, but not an easy place to raise a family, you know. Uh, right. And and so we uh, moved to St. Louis and I was employee number 16 and it was, you know, KKR uh backed it. So it was backed by KKR, the big private equity firm. And yeah. they put a lot of money into it. So it was really fast growing. I was now in the trade desk, trade desk environment where we were hedging and managing interest rate risk. And that was really exciting. And, and that's where you wanted to go earlier on. That's right. 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 Yeah. So I ended up kind of getting that Shame opportunity that and, and just working with people who were super high performing, super smart. And, um, you know, and then I followed them. The, we sold that company. That company was sold um, in 2005. And then three of the executives formed uh, Next Spring, and so I was employee number one then at Next Spring, and so the you know I won't bore you with the details, but really um, 
the, the company was formed to work with uh, the Blackstone Group, another large private equity firm. And so we um, ended up really the financial crisis was starting to happen. And so uh, Blackstone essentially put the company, our company on retainer for two years you know, down, during that financial crisis, looking at opportunities. And that I, I loved doing that. Because that was 07, right? You got started with Next Spring in 07. So right at the apex of it, right? Right. Well, you know, that world um, has a reputation of being, you know, kind of brutal. And certainly, you know, we've learned a lot through that, um, you know, financial crisis about the, a lot of the wrongdoings. And yet nobody ever went to jail. So we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But, um, you know, you're a man of faith. Um, how did you kind of balance that between your, you know, Christian core values and, and I'm sure going up against folks that perhaps didn't quite have the same level of integrity or ethics that you did? You know, that's a great question. I think um, we really stayed away from that. And, and probably because um, if I look back at the people, the folks at Blackstone, um, they were wickedly smart, um, incredibly tenacious, but they were also really just good people. I think they had a really amazing job at hiring uh, just top-notch people, and and they cared very much about culture. It was one of, we certainly at Nexstar, I, I attribute the, you know, to our leadership at Nexstar, Rick Thornberry and the other leaders at Nexstar uh, with creating a, a really compelling culture um, and where people felt valued and, and felt um, cared for. And and I was just really also taken with the culture at Blackstone um, and, right. you know, got to really get to know them. And and what we saw were a lot of the opportunities that we were looking at were people who had done some things that were not you know, uh, uh, probably <laughs> very ethical. Integrity-worthy. Uh, yeah, integrity-worthy. <laughs> and that's what had gotten them in that situation. And some of the, right. some of the opportunities we looked at, it really wasn't their fault, right? It was... It was, you know, sure. we had an amazing meeting. There was a large brokerage firm. It's a household name that I probably can't say the name of it, but they had gotten into some distress because of um, some assets that they had, mortgage-related assets. And so they were looking for just kind of some rescue capital. And so we were in there with Blackstone, brought in by Blackstone. The folks at Bear Stearns were also brought in. Um, and BlackRock was presenting sort of the data to this group. And they were, you know, they were basically showing that home price appreciation, which was kind of the historic norm, was now home price depreciation. <laughs> and, wow. and they were saying, basically, they're saying, if you believe these numbers, the guy literally says, this, he says, if you believe these numbers, he says, then you should probably be shorting or betting on the, you know, the downward price of every bank in this country. And he was right. Wow. Um, and, yeah. and literally the people who were at Bear Stearns that were kind of with us looking at this opportunity uh, a few weeks later, Bear Stearns was gone. So it was just yeah. the amazing, amazing time. And, and um, uh, you obviously uh, did this for a number of years. You came through the crisis um, and then you evolved to Trellis a few years later. I think there was three or four years, I think, from the time that you actually left, left next spring or, or perhaps molded that into Trellis. Tell us a little bit about those years. No, it was really, um, you know, this kind of gets back to this idea of being a kind of an ADD entrepreneur. So, when we were doing the work with Blackstone, we did some entrepreneurial stuff at, at Next Spring as well. But the we started getting into more traditional consulting, and okay. it started to get somewhat repetitive. And there we had a big project with a company that we worked on for a year, and we did a, a great job. It was kind of a turnaround um, for a large company, and we took a little time off towards the end of that. And I just had some time to think about 
some ideas that I was having about starting a company on my own. And the work was, you know, I'm, I'm happiest when my learning curve is kind of steep. It's kind of up and to the right, right? And so uh, it just didn't feel that way. It just, you know, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to just really explore this, you know, idea that I had. And so that was what led to Trellis. And you're a co-founder. So again, was this from one of your previous partners or is it someone else that you met along the way? That's somebody that came along the way. So uh, Tabitha Shiver um, joined me a little bit later. Very complimentary to me. You know, we're kind of that, you know, you want to have somebody that that their strengths are kind of matched up with your sure. weaknesses, right? And she's very much that way. She describes, uh, what does she call it? She's, she's kind of the microwave and I'm the slow cooker. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have both combinations. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been a couple of years in business now. So tell us a little bit about Trellis, what you do and, you know, the type of services you provide. Yeah. So, you know, the story around Trellis is, um, you know, kind of a key insight that I had was this harsh reality for business owners of small to mid-sized companies um, that let's call it, you know, kind of 10 million in sales to hundred, a million or more. Yeah, lower, um, lower middle market. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. most of these owners are not serial entrepreneurs, right? You know, 90% right. of them. And they get this one shot at this very high stakes kind of once in a lifetime event. And their wealth a lot of times is all tied up or mostly yeah. tied up in their business. And so, right. and it's this marketplace that's very much misaligned and predatory. So in my prior life uh, with the, you know, Nextstar and Next Spring, we, it was all very relational. Um, you know, the investment banks that we knew and the, the private equity firms that, that, our partners ended up uh, getting us involved with was all very much relationship driven. And I realized right. that these small to bit mid-sized owners don't have those relationships. And some of those relationships are kind of scary, right? It's a very misaligned and 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 too often predatory uh, market. And so, and it doesn't end well. Um, unfortunately, a lot of owners, 75%, around 75% report having a negative outcome. And so, mm. so you have this high stakes event, a lot of negative outcomes and, and, and when it's negative, right, it's not just the owner that's impacted, it's the the employees, right? It's the community, it's partners, sure. family members. All the stakeholders, yeah. Yeah. And so our vision for Trellis was really to, it's, it's kind of this bold vision of transforming this marketplace that we think is broken and misaligned in a lot of ways and really mm -hmm. shift it to being one that's more relational, uh, more, you know, less zero sum, uh, more win-win, uh, less transactional, more relational, and, and more people-centered. And so you can kind of think of it as, this combination of eHarmony plus Angie's List uh, <laughs> for owners who are going it. through this process. And it's, yeah. you know, we're creating a, a safe and trusted community that we, we call it for owners and by owners. And, and what that means is it's interesting. One of our key insights was that, you know, when it comes to their exit uh, and, and an owner's thinking about their exit, the person that they trust more than, you know, their lawyer, their CPA, their wealth manager, or even a family member is a fellow business owner who has been right. through the process. Um, yep. And so we have created this ecosystem that's really controlled a network. And you can think of it as community of advisors, investors, and buyers who can apply to be on the platform. And they have to be the ones that other owners said, these were the people who were win-win. These are kind of the playfair, right. keep your promises, best-in-class partners. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, our job really, we think of it as helping owners transition well by following the path of other owners who have transitioned well. Um, and to really mm -hmm. beat those odds that I talked about. And so take control of their outcome and their legacy and really kind of stick the landing on this on this goal and and to do it in a more purposeful way too. Because a lot of times the owner in their exit calculus, they're thinking money, <laughs> right? right? Which is fair and you should, but there's other parts of the calculus as well, right? Other parts of the equation, which is the people side. And, and a lot of times the owners don't really think about that. And how do you do this in a purposeful way? And we ended up 
also uh, uh, kind of coming to a partnership with C12 Group that you mentioned, uh, yeah. where we are the, right. the platform for their, uh, what they call the 310 Coalition, which is a sure. not just a sort of these play fair, keep your promises, win-win you know, partners, but people who uh, share C12's values and will help yeah. C12 members navigate this in a, in a God-honoring way and so in a, in a purposeful way as well. So. And are you working with them only on their exit or do you come in, you know, maybe a year or two out before they're planning to do so? I mean, is it a process or is it more of I've made the decision and then I come on the platform to seek advice and counsel? The earlier, the better, really. You know, yeah, we, yeah. we certainly come with. But it is with the goal towards an exit. It, it is, or it can be growth capital. So sometimes it's, right. you know, the same thing. If you want to bring in an investment partner, it's very much like a marriage, right? That's the e-harmony piece. You, you want it to be sure. a good marriage. Sure. Uh, and so, and even when you're selling it, you if you care about your people and what happens to them after the transaction, you you if you're going to sell it to a private equity firm or even to another company, you know, you want to at least be aware of what this means, right? To those people, right. if you care about right. those people. And so we help yeah. them do that. Yeah. Is it just the two of you or do you have employees, multiple offices? Tell us a little bit about your organization. Three in St. Louis um, and then two in Austin. Um, And then we have another colleague in London, but he's with us, you know, kind of just on a project by project basis. So when when you think about company culture, it is kind of the culture of the platform. So, you know, as CEO, that's your responsibility. How how do you go about doing that across? uh, And how many members or or people are on on your platform today? I'm sure I'm sure it changes a little bit, but on average, uh, how many folks are engaged? Yeah. So on average, it's uh, about 30 and we're usually yeah. have about um, a third to a quarter of those will be business owners at any one point in time. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and it's growing. So we're even in this environment, we're seeing more owners are aware that, uh, you know, I think they always thought the market was going to keep going up. <laughs> and sure. and right. so that's not the case. Right. And so planning and thinking ahead for for that transition is is as important now uh, yeah. as any time. Yeah. And there are also some who are being opportunistic and saying, are there opportunities for me to acquire other companies in this time? Sure. period? So, yeah. So when it comes to the culture of Trellis, are you personally communicating with them? Do you vet them, I suppose? And, you know, what do you do to try to build the culture, um, you know, with uh, with your broader platform? For our company itself or for the... Yeah, for, for I guess for the company's ideas, right, and core values with the folks that you want to have there. I mean, you don't have a large organization, so that's probably not as much of a challenge. But I'm sure people need to understand who you are and what you're all about and, you know, whether or not that's a good fit for them. How, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So we have, you know, kind of our core values and it's really around innovation. It's around excellence. Uh, it's around integrity. It's around putting the owner first, you know, putting their needs. This is, you know, we're really solving this problem, which is a kind of a misaligned market where a lot of the, uh, there are advisors who put their own needs right ahead of the needs of the client. Uh, and it can be tempting to do that. And so we've kind of created multiple layers of trust really in our product and in our, our, our values, right? And, and structurally within our company, we don't take any big success fees. Uh, it's all kind of fee-based uh, subscription type revenue. And so we really are looking at how can we build sort of, it's all about trust. I mean, you know, all these 30 companies, right? I mean, you had opportunities to chat with them or, or you or your partner engage with them. Is that part of the vetting process? We have a vetting process. It's kind of, there's some backdoor vetting and front door vetting. But one of the key things is we, they have to have referrals to owners who have done a transaction or worked with them in some advisory capacity. And so we talk to those owners and usually they come to us through somebody who knows our, we're looking for this kind of owner centric ethos, right? 
And so, uh, so there's a little bit of a filter at the front end as well. Well, listen, we're just about out of time, but I've got a couple more questions for you, Martin. And, you know, everyone on everyone's mind is, you know, lots of speculation of what a, a post-COVID world is going to look like. Um, pull out your crystal ball <laughs> and, you know, kind of thinking broadly, what, what changes do you see ahead, particularly for, you know, the lower middle market, that 10 million to 100 million, you know, uh, revenue size company? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> you know, we, um, our company is just, gotten accepted into an accelerator because we're, we're still early stage startup sure. an accelerator called Praxis um, out of New York. And it's a, a kind of Christian focused uh, accelerator. And they put out a really interesting piece recently that talks about this time and this crisis in three phases. And so the first, and they use the blizzard, uh, winter and ice age. Uh, kind of metaphor. And so Blizzard is kind of where we are right now, right? We, we yeah. kind of went into our homes and you're just like staying there and just like you would in a Blizzard, yeah. you're not going to go out and do anything. And then you're, you yeah. move into winter where you can kind of go back out. But their thesis is that this is right. Yeah, this is an, uh, a mini ice age. Um, so things are going to change, you know, and you have to essentially adapt to the new world, right? It's not going to go back to normal anytime soon. And so, you know, if you were, uh, you know, selling swimsuits, right? You're not going to be selling swimsuits anymore in a mini ice age, right? So you, and every company is affected differently. I think, you know, what we have been, we did a, we launched a new kind of mini webinar series um, for owners during this time. And one of the, one of the uh, categories of that series is basically battle-tested advice, um, from former, you know, kind of CEOs and current CEOs who've kind of been through really challenging environments. Because our perspective, and this is similar to, I think, the piece from Praxis, is that every owner right now is essentially a wartime CEO, right? That's right. And so you really have to look at the tactics and strategies in this environment are very different than, uh, you know, kind of being a... Uh, a, uh, a normal CEO. And, and so that means, yes, you, you do have to play defense, but you really also have to think about how you're going to play offense and how you're going to adapt and how you're going to take, you know, uh, take advantage if that's the way to put it, uh, in yeah. this environment and at least to survive and innovate. And, and we've yeah. certainly done that. Uh, so. Awesome. Well, thank you. Appreciate your perspective. Well, lastly, Martin, uh, we always ask this question of our guests, what career and life advice uh, would you give to someone perhaps who has their eyes on a corner office at their middle market company today, or perhaps like yourself, you know, decides to be an entrepreneur at some point in time? You know, um, I think I can speak better to the entrepreneur path because that's really been my path. It's very different, I think, than the corporate ladder, uh, you know, climbing path. And, uh, you know, a, a mentor of mine, a, a, a guy who I really have a lot of respect for, um, who is, I have mentors who I know and mentors that I don't know, right? We, we always have these mentors. This is somebody who I've met, but I, I he and I are not, uh, you know, on a, we don't, we don't talk all the time, but a guy named Mike Maples. He's a VC at a, at a firm called Floodgate. And and he talks about, you know, when you're doing a startup, doing something that is really worthy of your talent. If It's going to be, to me, doing a startup is is what I describe as this uh, self-inflicted pain and suffering. <laughs> yes. uh, and, uh, and, and you got to be a glutton for punishment. You got to be. And so if you're going to go through, you're going to go through this self-inflicted inflicted pain and suffering, uh, whether, uh, you do something really big and, 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 and game changing, or if you do something, you know, kind of small and, and that's not going to be that significant. So you might as well pick something that's, you know, game changing, right. Uh, cause yeah. you're going to go through the, the challenges, uh, regardless. And so 
um, his his view is like do something that's kind of worthy of your your talent, right? And so to me, that's I think it's about seeking out a vision and a mission as a leader. You're really called to cast this vision and mission, right? And to set the culture uh, that aligns with that, and then you know manage yourself in a way that aligns with that, and then bring in high performing people that also align with that. So to me, it's really about finding this vision and mission that is much bigger than yourself. Cause a lot of times ego is what gets in the way of success. Um, right. And so hopefully you are, are doing something that's going to make the world a better place. And it's really about that and not about you. Um, and then I think getting out over your skis is, is, and, and really leaning into that pain and suffering and seeing that as a way of, of transforming yourself um, and, and how that makes you a better person and a better leader. Well, Mark Myers, CEO and co-founder of Trellis, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Be safe and uh, stay inside during this blizzard. And uh, I wish you well as we all venture out into the winter and uh, perhaps uh, a long ice age. Well, but we'll, we'll remain optimistic because uh, we've got uh, the Lord looking over us, right? That's right. Yep. Thank you, Brant. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 